The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our dearest Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, needing your grace and your mercy. And Lord, I come uh, as the teacher knowing that uh, it really I mean, it matters what I say, but, but it really matters what you do with what I say in the hearts of your people. And so God, I just pray that you would uh, plant truth in each of our hearts and you would take the words uh, that are spoken and the thoughts that are thought and translate that in the air, Lord, uh, between my lips and the ears of your people and plant your truth and your, uh, the truth of your word in, in their hearts. And we ask, God, that you would send your gracious and Holy Spirit and we will be quick to give you the praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, friends, great to see a wonderful crowd. If you don't have a... Uh, uh, a copy of Matthew 18 in front of you. Elaine has uh, has some more. We are so glad uh, to see you. I uh, just want to say that um, there is uh, there are a few folks that haven't been with us, and so I just want to let you know sort of where we are in the book of Matthew and where we are in Israel right now. I should have done this beforehand, probably. All right, so this is, uh, if you can think of it, this is Israel, here's the Mediterranean, this is the Sea of Galilee, and this is Jerusalem down here. Right now, uh, Jesus is at Capernaum, which is up, this is about where Capernaum is, uh, like that. And so, um, he is, for those who hadn't been with us, Jesus, for the first uh, for the first 16 and a half chapters, Matthew is making the case to all of us that, that Jesus is the Christ. And then Peter confesses that he's the Christ. Uh, you are the you, Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and then uh, we have Mount, the Transfiguration, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then everything after that is moving towards the cross uh, and moving towards Jerusalem. And so that's kind of where we are right now. Um, the beginning of our passage says, at that time. At that time, meaning... He's still in Capernaum. He's still packing his bags. He's looking at his to-do list. He's making sure his passport is, uh, is, is up to date, and he likes the picture and everything. Um, so Matthew's telling us we're still in Capernaum. Uh, he hasn't left yet, uh, but there is this sense, if we were to go through the readings, there's a sense in which the teaching is darkening a little bit. Uh, just wait till we get to chapter 24, holy moly. Uh, but it's just becoming a little more urgent a little more pointed, um, and, and that makes sense, I think, as we look towards Passion Week, as we look towards the cross, um, and Matthew is exploring with us the cost of following Jesus to that place. Uh, in the first, or right after, right after the uh, confession, Jesus says, uh, you must take up your cross and follow me. You must take up your instrument of death in order to follow me. And so this, this section... Uh, I'm calling discipleship as death and resurrection, uh, because that is really the life uh, of Jesus, uh, the life of following Jesus, is that we are dying to ourselves in the hope and the expectation that he will raise us up uh, over and over and over again, death to self in uh, countless ways, which, you know, usually, I mean, it's always good, but it's not always uh, happy, you know, that, that, that's, you know, if you've got to give something up that is natural to you. Uh, that can be painful. Uh, but we expect that it will bring a joyful grace, a, a uh, resurrection, a new life, a, a peace, the peace that we are 
um, seeking, ultimately, even the peace that passes understanding. So, uh, so that's, that's really, as we think about following Christ, and we're moving towards the cross within Matthew, we are uh, thinking about ways, how do we die to self in order that we may uh, be resurrected to life uh, in Christ? Not just at the end times, but on a, sort of on a daily basis. And last week we talked about faith, a lot of faith, or in, in, indirectly in some ways. We talked about the boy that the disciples couldn't heal. Remember he had the epileptic seizures and, and Jesus uh, healed him. And then we had um, uh, the fish with the coin in its mouth. And, you know, you got to have a, required a lot of faith, I, I think. Uh, and this week, I think, is, is the same, but from a different angle. And, and I think a little more pointed, a little more personal than what we've had uh, up to this point. Uh, this week is really, I think, about humility. And uh, I always tell people never to pray for uh, patience or humility, uh, you know, because those things don't come by God just slapping impatience and humility uh, into your heart. They come, uh, they come the hard way, almost always. Um, uh, but, but, you know, the opposite of humility would be pride, and what is pride but misplaced faith? You know, it's faith in ourselves. And humility only comes by repeated death and resurrection. Much better to offer ourselves to death rather than God forcing us into a situation where we have uh, to die. Uh, to ourselves, not physically. Uh, but, um, so as in this, in this section, not only is Jesus with increasing momentum exposing our misplaced faith, but he is laying bare for us so many of the reasons that we need him to die for our sins. And so, this is not a finger wag that says, quit, quit being prideful and start being humble. It's just exposing for us with greater and greater clarity the grace that He is giving us. We, we already, unlike Matthew's original audience, we already know the end of the story, and so we come uh, holding all those things together, knowing that uh, with great gratitude when He exposes something through His Word, uh, that He immediately, we know that He has died for that. And given us new life. So we want to just uh, commit it to prayer. That's what repentance is. That's what uh, confession is. That's why when I say the, um, and now let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor, there's a pause, right, before we say most merciful God. Because we want you to be able to name those things. Uh, not, you know, whenever we, people, ugh, people don't like to talk about sin a lot of times. Uh, but, but man, we're just, it's not, it's, it's not saying you're bad. It's saying you need Jesus. Just like we all do. We all need Jesus. So, um, all right. So, um, so this is a, a call to repentance, a call to reform, to be sure, but a drive to our knees to cry out for our Savior. And we have a Savior, and He is mighty to save. He's mighty to save. So, let's uh, begin. Let's read the first paragraph. Would anybody like to do that for us? Thank you, Connie. <coughs> At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Yeah, don't hand out millstones. It's not a, not a good practice. So the disciples want to know about greatness. And it's easy to make fun of them, right? I mean, it's easy to say, like, man, after two years, hadn't you, hadn't you picked up a thing or two? Like, how, how can you... Um, how can you be asking now about who's the greatest? Because you know when you say, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they're not saying, like, out there, like, among the saints, you know, is, you know, is David or, or Abraham, which one is the greatest? They're saying, which of us, right? Like, which of us is going to get to be your vice president uh, and when you come in, and which is going to be the, you know, sort of designated survivor? You know, we, 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 we want to know, we want to know uh, where we stand and, and I just think this is, like, it's so natural. And, and it would have been for them. I mean, who's the, they looked around, they're fishermen, greatest fishermen. Who's the greatest fisherman? The one that catches the most fish. So they're not just out, you know, there's a sense in which I'm just out here trying to make a, a living for my family. But you know, there's a, kind of this thing that says, I want to be better than that guy, right? The greatest carpenter, uh, if they were car- any of who were carpenters, the one who did the best work and had the most work, right? I mean, i got to tell you, there are plenty, I, I've, I've definitely heard it said from seminarians, back, you know, back when I was a seminarian, I'm not really sure I'm called to be like a, a parish priest, but I do feel called to be a bishop. <laughs> well, you can have it. God bless you. Have mercy on your soul. I mean, the thing is, like, self-promotion is like the most natural thing in the world. I mean, it would be crazy. Anytime you're in your regular old, your regular job, you don't want to sit where you are forever. You want to be promoted. You want to get paid more. You want to be recognized. You want to have uh, different skill sets. And, and I mean, that just makes sense. I mean, self-promotion is the most natural thing in the world. It's not, and, and that, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, now that there's, there's Bad self-promotion, too. 95% of social media is self-promotion, right? I mean, like, who are the ones that are... People are famous for being famous. And, uh, you know, just... Uh, golly. I mean, you, like, kid, kid, my kids. Um, well, my kids know kids who... Um, uh, who want to, uh, you know, who just want to be... That's their greatest ambition is to be a YouTube influencer, you know, or on Instagram, you know, have a million followers on Instagram. Because you get paid, man. You get, like, just to have a million followers, you get a lot of money. Um, there are people who make millions of dollars a week for posting their dumb videos, blowing up watermelons in an uh, old VW Bug or something. So, um, so it is, uh, self-promotion is, is just so incredibly natural. Uh, and, and it... Social media is just a, a new way to do the thing that's old, as old as the apple in the garden. I mean, it's just, that's what we do. That's what we do. We're actually going to see that uh, in, in the next paragraph, Temptation of Sin. I want to ask the question, well, what is sin? But we haven't got there uh, quite yet. But th- so they want to know about uh, who is the most, uh, who is uh, the greatest, and Jesus, I'm sure, in a very Jesus kind of surprising sort of way, does the last thing that it would expect and pulls in a child. Now, they didn't have, you know, TV and, and this, you know, sort of age of innocence and this, this thing that, 
um, that, you know, oh, the children are so precious. Like, they, they, they were expensive, and they couldn't provide anything to the family. They had nothing to offer. They only had uh, needed your care. And it doesn't mean that they were, uh, it doesn't mean that they weren't loved and enjoyed and funny and laughed with and, and all those things, but, but they didn't have the sort of, as I understand it as scholars, uh, as I've read in scholars, they, they don't have, they didn't have this sort of um, almost deification uh, of, of children that, that we have, this pedestal of their, their, of their innocence. A child he has nothing to offer. This is why uh, often when they try to bring kids to Jesus to receive a blessing, the disciples are saying, get away. We, he doesn't have time for these nothings. Like, you know, and, um, and again, I mean, they, they just had misplaced faith, but um, but so Jesus brings them the, uh, the child. It says, unless you, because they want to be great, unless you turn, repent, right? That's the, repent, the word repent. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, that's real hard to do is humble yourself when you're perfect in every way, right? <laughs> Whoever humbles himself is uh, like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus mean? I mean, when you read that in your own devotions, you're reading that, you're reading in your, in daily, your daily office or whatever you do, uh, how do you take that? Because I'm looking around, a lot of you are not children and hadn't been for a while. So, <laughs> what? I hadn't either. It's been a while. <laughs> Connie, what? I take it as knowing my place and that I have nothing to offer him. Yes, okay. You have nothing to offer him. I love it. Somebody, uh, one archbishop, and I'm not sure he, if he said it or if he quoted it, uh, but he said, I have nothing to offer Jesus except the sin from which I'm saved, which I thought that was a clever turn of phrase. How do you take it? Any, any other, anything else to add as you... Say that again. Trusting Jesus like he's a parent. Now, I do actually. I didn't write that down. That's I might. I might after this class. That was, that's really good. Um, uh, I don't know. Is it your experience that your children naturally trust you? Uh, that that was was that your experience? You had boys, yeah. <laughs> so ideally, on the TV in the age of innocence, that's what. Um, no, that's, uh, I mean, I, I love that, this, this sort of uh, childlike trust. And even when they, they're, you know, we, children run off and, and scream and, and, and do whatever, but they're going to come back because they need, to, they need to eat, right? I mean, that's like, um, and so there's this sense of which you understand your place. I think Connie says that uh, very well. Um, and he says, whoever receives, not only is it you have to become like a child, but you have to receive a child. Um, and does it mean be nice that all of you, none of you should be here, you should actually be in teaching Sunday school. Is that what that means? What, what is it? Uh, what, what, PSA. Um, what, what do you, what do you, how do you take it? You have to receive, unless whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Is he talking about children? Is he talking about age? Or what, what is he talking about? Kind of reminds you, given the context 
you know, you're saying with the, the having nothing to offer in the context of the relationship to God reminds me of the, you know, whenever I was hungry, you fed me, and whenever I was in jail, you visited me, those kind of things. You know, maybe in that context, you know, um, where you're receiving somebody who's in the same <clears throat> in the same boat as you, who need, who has need, and doesn't have anything to offer. Yeah, I think I think it's not just talking about children, but although children would be implied, but whoever receives a child of God in my name receives me. Whoever um, isn't concerned with their own greatness, but is concerned with meeting the needs of others. Like when you when you receive a kid, you're going to have to take care of them, right? You, like, I mean, when my kid wants to take their friends to the movie, I'm paying for that kid. I mean, that's just the way it is, right? That child has come, and I'm got, I've got to, I, now he's under my wing, you know? And so um, it is, it, I, think it, I think that's what it's like, is this saying whoever receives uh, a child of God in the sense that uh, I'm putting, I'm no longer putting my, my own needs first. I'm, I'm now seeking to meet their needs. I'm serving them. Uh, that we actually receive Christ. There's a constant sense through the New Testament that when we uh, treat, however we treat God's children is how we treat God. Like when, when God says to uh, Saul in, in Acts, who becomes Paul, He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul had been persecuting Christians. But Jesus took it personally. And, and I think that there is, uh, there's a lot of it. Uh, there's a lot of instances like that. And Jesus says, if you receive a child of God in my name, you, you receive me. Just like what the passage Josh was referring to, um, I was naked and you, um, and you clothed me, I was hungry and you fed me. Those, those things, Jesus takes that personally when we uh, receive someone like that. And again, and the, whole, the whole sermon this morning is about getting out of our own way and, um, and putting the, the pri- prioritizing what God prioritizes. So a lot, again, a lot of, a lot of overlap. I, I tend to that that happens a lot, doesn't it? Um, whoever uh, causes, but so the, the contrary, the corollary to that is whoever causes one of these little ones. And I think that's not just children, although I think there's a special place in hell for people who cause children to sin. But there is um, uh, whoever um, causes one of the children of God to to do to act apart from. God's will. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck. Is there grace for someone like that? Let's say you, in a, in a previous iteration of your life, or just in a moment of weakness right now, that you lead someone astray. You call someone, oh, come on, like, let's, I don't know what, you do all sorts of ways to lead someone astray. Is there great? I mean, are you, is that it? Better for a millstone to be fastened around your neck, drowned in the depth of the sea. That doesn't sound very good. There's always Pardon me? There's always There's grace. There's always grace. But I think it does say, I mean, it, there is a stern warning, but it's not, it's, there's never without grace. The thing is, we don't, we don't look at grace and say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Because it does matter. It matters a lot. And yet, there's grace. And so we hold those things together, um, side by side. So we need to be very careful. I think Jesus is saying how we treat others. It's not that's that's not new news, is it? Uh, but it's also um, so we want to we want to treat others with humility, and we want to um, we want to make sure that we are setting good examples. That's Jesus takes that personally.
All right, let's go on to the uh, to the next the next temptations to sin, which is really just a continuation of, of what he's begun. And, and I just I use the paragraphs just just like uh, I mean I just cut and paste them from the Bible online, you know. So uh, if I were doing, I might have put tempta- the title "Temptations to Sin" uh, above verse five instead of verse seven. But anyway, let's. Um, so it's really a continuation of that. Woe to the world! For temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell of fire. The gospel of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Um, so, again, I think a lot of times he's just, and, and forgive me if I sort of am repeating myself. Not only do the themes match up, but uh, it's been a busy week. Um, the a lot of these things are to drive us to a savior. I mean, we we ought to see that there is no way for us to cross the gap from where we are to the holiness that God requires, and that we need Jesus to have come from the other direction, you know, from an outside savior to come and do for us what we could not do. And yet, our personal holiness is our our striving for righteousness is incredibly important. We want to reflect His glory and His goodness to a watching world. And so, uh, I do not think He's being literal. I do think He's um, being serious. If you're, So, woe to the ones um, through whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin. That is, your hand is perhaps what you are doing. And your foot is where you are going. And let's just say... Sin is such a big deal, that is, uh, to uh, overtly and consciously uh, transgress the will of God is such a big deal for a child of God that if it would be better for you just not to have a foot to take you where you're, where, into that spot or a hand to do the thing. If your eye causes you to, uh, what you look at, how, uh, how you see the things, uh, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now listen. This little thing doesn't do anything. What the problem is not here. It's about two inches behind it, right in your in your brain, and um, and and that's uh, thankfully he didn't say. Um, see, uh, um, Jesus is using a graphic metaphor. He's not being literal, but he's certainly uh, elsewhere. He's, like like elsewhere, he's calling us to repentance, calling us to examine the holiness of our life. Uh, not because he requires it for salvation, but because he uh, needs it to uh, have, bear testimony in the world. And dying to ourselves is part of following him. So, Joe, I, I kind of think this kind of speaks to me. I think these three sentences in this generation today of quote phrases could be phrased as offload your baggage. And we all know what our baggage is, and it's like moving. You know, and you go, oh, no, I need to take this and I need to take that. Once you lose it, you go, God, how did I ever have that club in my garage or whatever? 
It's hard to do, but when you get So he's it. speaking against clutter in our garage? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's another Clutter in our hearts. Clutter in our hearts, yes, indeed. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the issue is the heart, not the hand. You know, it's not the eye. It's, it's, um, it's, it's the seat of our emotions, the, um, that lizard part of our brain that always elevates the self and protects the self and pleasures the self. And that's really the life of the disciple, is learning to put God first. And, or another way that we've said that is to learning to um, live into what is already true about us because God has declared us to be holy. Right? He declares us to be holy. Joe. Yes, ma'am. As he's talking to his disciples, or maybe a crowd of people, I don't know exactly how many folks were there, but when they're listening to this, we, we know what we're supposed to do because we've already got the proof of God's grace and that he died for our sins. These people did not know this. They might have known that he was a holy man and that he was something special and he had gifts from God, but he didn't, they didn't know the end results. That's right. So when he spoke like this, how did they react? I mean, if I sat today and didn't know the end result of this, these verses... I would really be confused. This would confuse me. So, well, I mean, you remember the part, the part in John where he says some really hard things. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Uh, and people are just like, this is too hard. Yeah. And they yeah. take off. And he looks at his 12 disciples. That's who he's talking to here is just the disciples. Okay. And he says to the disciples, um, are you going too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of life. And it's like I said in the sermon last week, I mean, we trust that when we have hard, hard passages, we trust that there is something in there for us that we need to hear, even if it's, it's hard. Um, and I think that we need to understand, well, your question isn't what do we do with it, your question is what did they do with it, and I think it was hard. But he's, he is speaking to the twelve, not to, not to the masses. So would they have had a... a- enough of a biblical background based on the Old Testament that they would be able to understand this? Do they have enough of a biblical background that they would understand? I actually think that they had enough relationship with Jesus that they could bear it trusting His goodness. Um, now, I'm, no, I'm not a, a scholar uh, in that sense, but I but that's how I understand it. That they... Um, I mean, they, they were... They knew enough to know that... that Jesus expected uh, that their lives, his presence in their lives would make their lives different. And I think he expects the same of us, not in, not in a finger-wagging sort of way, but that in that, in, like if I, if I drop my Bible on the floor, it's going to make a sound kind of way. Like it's a natural consequence of, of having Jesus in your life is that Jesus' grace changes us. Now, the gravity of our self-centeredness is such that that sometimes we try to pull it back, that change. But, um, but let, I mean, let's ask this. Like, what, it, what is sin? He says, if your eye calls you to sin, what is that? What is he talking about? Separation from God. Yeah, okay. So I don't think it's just, you know, doing something on some celestial list of bad things you're not supposed to do, which, by the way, would probably change from culture to culture. Um, I think it's 
we want to be God. Yes. If you couldn't hear, Jim said, I think it's that we want to be God. And that is, we, we may not want to have celestial power, because that would be a pain in the butt, but the... Um, uh, but we, we want to, uh, we at least, at least want to be God, God unto ourselves. And that's, I mean, you think about the, the first sin in the garden. You know, it wasn't that she, that eating a piece of fruit was a bad thing, or even that piece of fruit. It was that she did, wanted to do what God, she wanted to do instead of what God had said. I know better than what God, God, and what's the second, the very, you know, the, Adam's watching, looking on and not saying anything about it. He's just letting her do it. Passive. Passive. So, Joe, I think that goes back to the one-up, who is the greatest. When he's referencing a child, I think the reason why it works to me, it speaks to me that it's a child, because um, young, a true child, understands a dependency on their parents. And I think he's drawing their connection that unless you have yeah. a dependency on God, you're not humble. So you're, you're foolish, basically. That's right. So well, that's right. The child is looking to the to the parent for direction, right? Uh, ideally, and so and so we ideally are looking for to our heavenly Father for direction, uh, recognizing our dependence, even though sometimes we want to go screaming down the street. Um, so, what is sin? It's not just about breaking God's rules. Ultimately, sin is prioritizing ourselves over God, right? Uh, think about the breaking the Ten Commandments. Like adultery is. Selfishness. It's not that adultery is bad. It is bad, but it's just, it's it's um. But it's it's why? Did, I mean, nobody has ever committed adultery that thought, oh gosh, I didn't realize. I'm not supposed to do that. I didn't realize. Like, no, it's selfishness. It's me getting what I want. I'm God unto myself. Well, same thing with uh, with stealing or anything else. Not keeping the Sabbath is to say I know better than God knows about what I need. Yes, it's about rooting out those things in us that are against God's will. Ultimately, though, it must, there must be a strident call to examine where we are placing our trust. Where are you placing your trust? Death and resurrection. We're dying to self. We're examining where we are falling short. We are holding it before the Lord. Let's move ahead. Parable of the lost sheep. Matthew tells it differently. I think it's in Luke. might be in Mark. Maybe both. I didn't uh, look it up. But um, he tells it a little differently. Um, the, uh, it's, not just, it's not just the rejoicing, oh, I found my lost sheep. It tells it a little differently. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, because we're in the same context. For I tell you that in heaven there are Angels, these little ones, angels, always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's a strange sentence. And I don't really know what to make of it. I've been thinking about it a little bit, but I don't... Um, I can, we can take a shot at it, but I don't, I don't really know what to make of it. What do you think, he says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I looked at that all week. I thought, that, why does he go 
Like that, I just at first it didn't make any sense to me that that this parable would be right here. It doesn't seem to follow, and that's because I was reading it like I would be reading it in Luke, where things that are lost are found. Parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the of the lost coin. But in this context, the way Matthew is is telling it is that um, is that the heart of the father is to protect the ones who would wander astray. And it's our job, hold on just one second, let me finish the sentence, because I'll forget. Um, no. um, it's our job to, as disciples, in dying to ourselves, to look out for one another. That's part of loving our neighbor. Go. Sheep are not the smartest tools in the box. And so one that leaves the flock, the rest will stay together because they're good right? But the one that leaves was, was stupid because it wandered off. That's what we're like. Yes. Yeah, well, no, the parable makes sense. It just, I didn't understand the context of it. Yeah, I know, I mean, we are sheep, and, you know, it really is not a very flattering um, image. You know, because, they're, you know, that little, that sweet little lammy that we see, you know, that just precious little lamb, that's not what he's talking about, right? He's talking about this stanky, woolly thing. So, um, but, that, but he's talking about the heart of the Father for uh, the lost, and, he, and he's specifically in the context of looking out for one another. And in order to look out for one another, we have to humble ourselves and get out of our own way. But in verse 14, he's talking about the child again. So it kind of brings it, it's still uh, the, in context of children. In the context of the children, the child of God is not the will of my Father in heaven who is that one of these little ones should perish or stay apart from the flock, right? Because if, if they wander off, like you said, they're going to die. The wolf's going to get them. In the context, though, we've talked about mill, millstones. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they, they could just wander into a river and their wool fills up and then they're off, off at the bottom of the river. It's called a sheepwreck. Um, the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping to slip that one in there. Yeah. John. Okay. The least of these. Looking at the little ones as the least of these. Okay. Yes. So if one goes astray, he's going to try to get it back. Because it always, in, in the Old Testament talks, he's always watching for the one that's coming back. Yeah, I, I, I don't know where my mind goes with that. I want to make sure that I don't see myself as anything other than one of the least of these. Um, that's the sheep that's gone astray. That's the child who doesn't have anything to offer. Um, but, but I agree. I mean, we... So I don't want to be up on high and looking at the le- these, you know, sort of self-righteous and looking at the least of these. However, I, I agree with you that God's heart is for the lost. It's for the lost. Yes. I, th- I, I can certainly go there. Yes, Katie. Uh, 
goes to the depths of the hell of fire in his talking, but he always brings back hope in God. Mm -hmm. And I think, I know, at least in my life, all those times I have been in desperate sin, it felt like hellfire. But God always found a way to get me back and not let me yeah. wallow in it. And it could be, I mean, it could be like you're doing what we think of, like bad, bad things or whatever. That could be a season of that. But it could also be a season of despair and worry and not trusting that God's got this. And it's all... And everything in between. And he wants us to come. Yeah. That's, that's his, from the very beginning. He just wants us to love him so much that we want to have that relationship. I, I agree with all of that. I just, I think in this context, I think part of it is saying that, that our responsibility as disciples and dying to ourselves is to take responsibility for those who are lost as well. That's getting out of our own way and being careful. Whether it's our children, whether it's uh, our neighbors, whether it's each it's certainly each other. I mean, and that's what a church family yeah, does. we're called to love each other. Yes. And loving will help to bring them back. That's right. You know, I've not been real successful at arguing people into my position. Uh, you know. <laughs> but but if, um, if, if I can love them despite differences, that actually typically opens the door. And vice versa, by the way. Vice versa. So, yeah, I... I, I I think you're onto something there, Katie. What else? So the, the heart of the Father is that uh, no one should perish. But I think that we are much more likely to see ourselves with humility if we view ourselves as the as the one and not one of the ninety-nine. And what did the 99 do when they're talking about that one? <laughs> Bless his heart. <laughs> yeah, that, that one is bad. <laughs> you are just full of it today. <laughs> That's what happens when I have a busy week. Yeah, yeah. I think, too, on that same point, is it's better for us to see ourselves as the prodigal than the good, the good son. Yeah, well, it's better to, to see as the as the prodigal. Uh, the good son had his own problems, didn't he? Yeah, but but to see ourselves in need of the grace of the Father, one way or the other, for sure. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's that. It's knowing that we need grace is the only way to be one who gives grace. Otherwise, you're just self righteous. I mean, listen. It's good to, if you're self righteous. It's better to be nice than ugly. <laughs> but it's better to be humble than self righteous. And if I forget that. This afternoon, you let me know. All right, big kickoff Sunday. Make sure you get your t-shirts. Make sure you get to go to church and uh, hot dog lunch for families of children and youth. Yes, Jim? Unrelated question. Yes, sir. After the Pogo sermon this morning, we got a little announcement from the standing committee chairman. Yes, sir. Are we going to have to have a new election? The very short answer to your question, uh, is, which is, are we going to have to have another election? The short answer is yes. And more, and I, I cannot go into it right now. But the details, uh, and I, I, the details have not been written yet. We got a lot of listening and praying and breathing to do, and we will. But I promise we will do our best to. I'm meeting with the bishop this week, and with the standing committee this week. But yes, we're gonna have to do it again. We're praying for you. Thank you.
God bless you.